Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for an opportunity to be in this space for the beautiful sunshine that we see outside. Lord, it's, uh, it reminds us all of the upcoming spring. Lord, spring is a time in which, uh, for me at least, it just helps me understand the beauty of, of the resurrection, where we come from the dead of winter in which things are dead and dormant, and in spring, new life comes out of that space. God, may this morning be a, a representation of that, of, uh, of new life that springs up in each of our lives. Lord, as we look at a story that is admittedly incredibly difficult, uh, may we gain a better understanding of who you are and what that means for all of us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Uh, two other things before we jump in. Um, I just remembered. One, um, Lisa had mentioned the high, high card um, and the Church Center app. I, I realized that we have two different high cards, one of which has a QR code on it. Um, so this is the print version one. This is print version two with a QR code. The QR code actually links you to our Church Center app. I just figured that out. So if you haven't done either of those things yet, Look for, I mean, you may have to search, because I don't know where the actual ones with the QR are, but that can do that for you. Two, uh, when it comes to the chicken drive, um, the, uh, if you are going to bring chicken in, look at the expiration dates, and hopefully they expire later than November of next year. It shouldn't be that hard to find, but checking that matters, because our hope is we'll get so much chicken that we won't be able to use it all this year, right? Um, so then, if it doesn't expire till after November of last year, we can use it next year which will be really great. So it uh, shouldn't be hard to find as long as they're relatively new. November's not that far away for canned food, so just keep an eye on those expiration dates, and that would be really, really helpful. Is that right, Andrea? I got it? Awesome. Thanks. All right. If you've been with us through this year, we've been working through the book of Genesis, uh, and we've made it to, to Genesis 9 this morning. Um, we've spent last week and this week looking at what I'm realizing is one of the most difficult stories in the Bible. Uh, we kicked off the story of Noah last week. Um, if you, um, we covered a lot of ground last week. I can't go through it all, um, so if you, but you can get it online if you want. Um, but what I realized as I started wrestling with Noah is how hard this story is. Um, the, the last week's sermon and this one might be the two hardest I've ever had to write. Um, why, why I say that is... is because of, the, because of a number of things. One is the number of different themes that run through the story. Uh, we could spend, and I mentioned this last week, we've taught Genesis 1 through 9, and I feel good about all of those messages we've given. Could do it two more times teaching entirely different things and still feel incredibly confident in what we're teaching. There's that many parallel layers running through the whole thing. Um, also, when it comes to the story of Noah, how we interpret what, the, what Genesis 1 through 11 is affects the way we understand this story too in a lot of ways. And there's been tension over the years on those things. So trying to navigate through all of those spaces has been difficult. I probably have six hours of material on the cutting room floor and still not sure exactly how to pull it all together. Um, for a lot of us, especially when we come to the story of Noah, um, we, we stop with a, with a more uh, elementary understanding of the story. I, I mentioned this last week, and I'll mention it again. For many of us, Noah is a story that we all know, but we all know it like this, right? That's the way that we understand Noah because we, we're taught it in Sunday school. And if you were downstairs right now, that, those kinds of pictures would be the ones you would use to teach the story of Noah. And in that story, we've got happy little pairs of animals. We've got a smiling Noah on the front side getting onto the boat. And then when they get off, it's like, hey, everybody, it's all good, rainbow. Um, and then you start to actually read the story, and you're like, 
this is a story of the destruction of all of the human race, right? Uh, not smiley, happy lions, right? Um, you got to imagine that you wouldn't have a beautiful display there in the second picture post-flood, right? So what do we do with that? We mentioned last week that when we actually start to wrestle with this particular story, when we bring it into an adult space, now granted, we wouldn't teach it any differently downstairs. It's, we talked about spiritual milk and meat last week. It's appropriate to give milk to infants or, or kids, right? But then when we grow up a little bit, we got to chew on it a little more, uh, and then that creates a whole bunch of difficult questions in the story of Noah, some of which we mentioned last week, some of which we tackled last week, some of which we're going to try to tackle today. And when we start to wrestle with those things, it creates inside of us, at least in me, a lot of tension on how we understand what, what happens in this story. Why did it happen? How, did, how, how could God do that? Is it good? How do all of those different things work? Because we, we started, and we'll start again this week, with, with the beginning of the story in Genesis 6, verse 5, which says, Then the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created, and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. That is a difficult passage, and it's the beginning of the story for us to just sit with, isn't it? There's so many different things that you could pull out of there and go, well, what do we do with that? One of the major questions, I think for me, and I think I even I wrestled with this when I was a kid too, and maybe for some of you, is the question is if this is God's uh, perspective towards humanity, is he actually good? Could a God, good God do this? Destroy, destroy human race, plants, animals, birds, all of those things. Now my guess is, for you out there, there are probably two reactions to that question. If, for, I, when I have this conversation with people who've been in the church for a long time, right, if you grew up, especially if you grew up with a Sunday school understanding, right, that makes you uncomfortable, right? Noah is about cute animals. Of course, God is good. How does that play itself out? We just don't think about that, which is obviously an overgeneralization. But it makes you uncomfortable to even ask that question. On the other hand, there are others of you who, who maybe don't have that same kind of experience who are thinking, yeah, that's exactly the question we should be asking about this story. The number of times I've had conversations with people who are exploring faith, exploring who God is, around the story of Noah and God's goodness is exceptionally high. Right? If God is good, how does he do this is a major, major question that we have to ask. It's, it's the big elephant in the room. And so that's what I want to kind of tackle today. I want to kind of tackle how do we wrestle with that particular question. We said it throughout Genesis the whole time. We said where we start the story matters, right? We, that, that starting in Genesis 1 matters when we, for how we read the rest of the scriptures moving forward. We've, also, we've seen that as well as we've moved through, but we've also said how we view God matters. And so a good, solid answer to the question, is God good? Is God good in this story? How do we understand his goodness in this story? Uh, is important how we're going to read the rest of the scriptures moving forward. The way we view God will, will shape our picture of the story as a whole. So, 
The question still remains, is God good? What's happening in the story? And how do we reconcile our ideas of a good father with what we see in this story here? Now, my guess is there are a variety, there are, there are many of you who wrestle with a variety of that question, or some kind of variation of that question. Because it's asked in num- we've asked it in a number of ways over the years. If God's good, we'll say, why do bad things happen to good people? Maybe is a question you've asked before. If God is good, why doesn't he just look at the evil that we see all around us and just say, enough, it's over, we're done with it? If God is good, why did he create someone like Nero or Domitian or Hitler? God is good, why do children die? Why do natural disasters happen? How do we wrestle with all of those things? We're not going to be able to give an answer that will satisfy all of those questions completely. But our hope is we can wrestle with it a little bit this morning. It continues on. We actually can ask ourselves the question, does God cause these things to happen? Or does he just allow them? And if he does allow them, why? See, these are serious and difficult questions in our faith, aren't they? If they're ones you haven't wrestled with, then maybe it'd be good to, because it's, it affects how you see so much of what we read in Scripture or how, much we, how, how we interact with God in those spaces. The problem is we tend to answer those questions in ways that aren't really satisfying Maybe you've heard it answered this way. Well, God is good because it's all part of God's plan. All the things that you're experiencing are some, some, way, it's some way, shape, or form part of God's plan. Anyone heard that one before? I see a lot of nods. Implying, though, in that statement, then, is what you've experienced as evil or wrong or hurt is actually a good thing. Have any of you ever been in a space in which you're experiencing real, deep, tangible pain... And someone has said, well, it's all part of God's plan. Did that make you feel better or worse? Now, the intentions were probably good. I understand that. Most of us don't. We're we're, we're trying to make someone feel better. But so often in those spaces, it just makes you that much more angry. Because in those particular spaces, they're said with good intentions, but, it, but, it, but, it's, but it's a really hard pill to swallow on a macro scale, right? So you go, go to the biggest one we can do. So then God planned the Holocaust, right? There's some greater good that came from that somewhere. The first thing that I think then is then shouldn't God be able to be a little more creative than that? Whatever good thing he was trying to accomplish, it seems like there might have been a way that was less destructive and less painful, We can do that on a number of macro things as well, but it's even harder for many of us on a personal scale, isn't it? If you've been through a tragedy or loss, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Is sexual assault part of God's plan? If you've experienced it, my guess is you're thinking, better not be. Or the loss of a loved one, or cancer, or heartache... They're difficult things to wrestle with. Another answer that can parallel the first one then is that that these things happen because God's trying to teach us some kind of lesson. You're experiencing pain because you need to learn something you're not learning. If you just learned the lesson or repent from whatever thing you were doing, it'd all be over. That can be equally as troubling, can it? Because it makes God this cryptic kind of 
I don't know, test, he just, he's constantly testing us in these cryptic ways, and we experience pains in, the, pains in the midst of it. So it brings us to the question, then, is that what's going on? How does that make God good? It feels cruel in a lot of ways, especially when you're in the midst of it. See, these are the questions, questions of faith that keep people from Jesus often. So today, my hope is that we can begin to build a framework that can help us start at least to wrap our heads and our hearts around these questions. It's not going to be a concrete, complete answer to all of it. Those are things we're going to have to wrestle with for a long time. But my hope is we can at least begin moving in that direction. So two things. If you've been around for a while, we are going to be retreading some ground that we've been to before, which is good. So it's good for those reminders. But for those of you who are newer, we're only scratching the surface here. There's still going to be a lot of questions on the table, and that's okay. We, we like to say around here, at least I like to say around here, that one of the markers of what it means to follow Jesus is to wrestle with these hard things. We've, I've talked a number of times before about the time in the Old Testament in which there, uh, Jacob is wrestling with uh, an angel in the Old Testament. There's a story about Jacob wrestling with, a, with an angel. At the end of that particular story, God changes Jacob's name. It's going to be the name of his people throughout time. He changes the name of Jacob to the name Israel, which means to wrestle with God. Essentially, what God is saying from that point forward, he's saying the marker of my people, the first thing that you're going to know about my people is that they're defined by the fact that they wrestle with me. Every time you say the name Israel, it puts out there that we are people who wrestle with God. A marker of a person who's following God is someone who wrestles with these kinds of things. And so that's what we're going to hope to do this morning. So here's the roadmap for kind of where we want to go. I'm going to do my best at this. I'm going to start by just talking about pain in general. Then we'll shift towards the Noah story and see what we can learn uh, about God in that particular space. And finally, hopefully, we can land the plane. We'll see. But before we actually dive back into this story, I just want to help, I want to give you a help, what I've found to be a helpful category of how we can begin to understand the pain that we experience in our lives, especially related to some of the questions that we've just asked. As I read through scripture, what I see is that not all pain comes from the same origin. I actually think there are four different kinds of pain that we see in scripture, each coming from a different source and each then uh, instructing us to respond to it differently. The first kind of pain I think that we see in Scripture, the one that I think most of us, uh, when we think of pain, especially in relationship to God, we, we, we attribute it to this space. The first kind of pain that we see in Scripture is something the Bible calls a trial. We see it in James 1 where it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Then it encourages us, let perseverance finish its work, that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So we see that in, inside of Scripture, there's this, this, this category of pain known as a trial. The way I've talked about that before is that the way that I understand this kind of pain is it's a lot like a workout, workout kind of pain. And in this case, God's like your coach. I've given this analogy here before, so again, we're retreading old ground, so bear with me if you've been around for a while. If I was going to try to run a marathon, first of all, running is objectively horrible. We all know that. You guys know my stance on that. Um, some of you disagree, and we'll convert you eventually. But if I was going to run a marathon, I could probably run three miles right now, maybe, <laughs> badly. But obviously, a marathon takes a lot more than that. So I was going to hire a coach to do that for me. The coach would give me trials. Brent, today you're going to have to run five miles if we're going to get to the 20-something it is for a marathon. 
Well, that's going to cause me pain, isn't it? That trial of stretching me those extra couple miles is going to hurt. It's kind of the point, right? And so in that pain that I'm experiencing, it's because of the trial my coach has given me to stretch me and make me healthier and stronger. I experience pain, but it the pain of a workout is different than other kinds of pain, isn't it? It hurts, but I know it's good for me. You guys tracking with me on that one? First kind of pain we see in Scripture is trial kind of pain. God does give us those. Hey, I'm going to stretch you. I want to push you into this uncomfortable space. It might be painful, but you'll become stronger because of it. The response that we pray for in that space then is perseverance, which we saw in James 1. This is hard. Help me get through it. When I'm on mile 10, whenever I get there, never, because I'm never running a marathon, objectively horrible, we already said that. But if I was going to try at mile 10, I would need a prayer for perseverance because I would die. But you get the point. But it's not the only kind of pain that we see in Scripture. The second kind of pain that we see in Scripture, I'm going to call an attack. The Scripture says often that there is an enemy out there as well. Uh, We call him the devil, whatever you want to call it. And that kind of pain is different. It feel, that feels like something is coming for you, trying to destroy you. When I've talked to people in the midst of this space, the, the kind of pain they're experiencing sounds a lot different than workout pain. It's, it's often been described to me as a darkness or a heaviness or a, like a deep emotional weightiness or a cloudiness or a confusion. There's lots of different ways to describe it, but it's a different experience of pain altogether. It doesn't feel like it's making me stronger. It feels like it's trying to wreck me. Maybe you've been in that space before. It's very, very different than a trial. In a trial, we've said, God has given it to me to stretch me, to make me stronger. I will experience pain, but I'll be healthier at the end. An attack is not that. And actually, even the way that we respond to it is entirely different. In Matthew 6, in the Lord's Prayer, it says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. If we're in in an attack space in which there is something that's trying to hold us back or down, the prayer is not for perseverance, the prayer is for deliverance. Protect me from this thing that wants to destroy me. Third, We see throughout Scripture that sometimes we experience pain because we make terrible decisions. You see it in the Old Testament. The book of Judges is that often, right? The whole book of Judges kind of works in that way. That, hey, here are the consequences. If you do this thing, there's a consequence to it, and then we experience that consequence. My guess is many of you have experienced that in your lives, right? That if if you make a series of bad decisions, sometimes you wake up and you're like, this consequence doesn't feel good. It causes me pain. The prayer in that space is different than both perseverance and deliverance. We're not just trying to persevere through our bad decisions. We're not being attacked either. But we've made bad choices and the consequences are, are painful. The prayer in that space is mercy. We, saw it, we see it in the Psalm of David. Have mercy on me, God. I, I blew it. Right? Created me a clean heart after Bathsheba. We have a, in those particular painful spaces, I've made mistakes. I've done things I ought not. Please have mercy on me in those those particular spaces. And then finally, there's a category that's called natural brokenness. 
We, re- we realize that we live in a world in which things aren't the way they ought to be. Sickness exists, natural disasters exist, all of these different things that, that weren't part of the original created order exist now. There's tragedies that happen that cause us a lot of pain. In the book of Romans, it actually says there that in, in that particular space, that creation itself groans for the resurrection. That it is hoping that, 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 uh, that Jesus can come and things be set right. Our response in this space is just lament. Things aren't the way they ought to be, and that makes us sad. But in that lament, we hear the hope that they won't be like that forever. Now for me, those categories of pain, as we, as we one, that's an overly simplistic view. They're not also mutually exclusive. Sometimes two or three of them will happen at once. But it can help me start to give, it helps me at least start building a framework of when I'm experiencing pain in my life, where is it coming from and how do I deal with it? It does move us from the space of blaming God for all things, right? If you're in an attack and you think it's a trial, that gets things messed up pretty quickly. With that framework, though, we're still left with our original question. Whether or not we think God is good. We've already acknowledged the difficulty of the passage. You're not going to resolve it all. But I'm going to try now to hopefully point out a few things that can reshape the way that we see the story of Noah. We started that last week, and some of that matters. Um, one of the things that we saw last week, and, we're, and I'll go quickly. Unfortunately, I can't give it you all. Again, you can go back and listen to it online if you want to. But we saw last week that starting at Genesis 8, moving forward. So Genesis 8, the flood has already come. Noah is sitting on top of the water in the boat. And then, and then uh, the, the, I guess the flood being over starts happening there. We saw last week that from Genesis 8, moving forward, God is recreating what happens in Genesis 1. Actually, this, the progression perfectly parallels with what happens in Genesis 1. It starts with light and dark, then moves into the separation of the waters from the sky, like the water stop from the sky, then we see land again. So the progression that we see in Genesis 1 of the creation story is redone in Genesis 8. Essentially, he's telling the reader that God is recreating the earth and everything in it. We also saw last week That in Genesis 1, humanity is given a task. We were supposed to fill the earth with with, with peace and flourishing, but instead, what we saw in our passage today, we have filled it with violence and pain. When God God looks at humanity, he's sad. But one of the points we made last week is not not because uh, his ego is bruised or something like that, but because his desire for us to experience the amazing things that he created us to live into we actually had done the opposite. God says to Adam and Eve, go fill the earth and essentially spread the peace of the garden across the entire thing. What we see after the story of Cain, however, is that we filled the earth, sure, but with violence, destruction, and, and pain. What I want us to see this week, though, is that one of the most interesting aspects, in my mind at least, of the Noah story is that God is sad not mad. I think often when we read the story of Noah, we think of an angry God. Maybe you don't, I did. Read it again on your own. One of the things you'll notice is that God's not angry, he's sad. Very different emotions. 
God's heart is broken over the fact that humans are, fo- are, are focused on hurting each other instead of the flourishing that they were created for. We're doing everything we can to actually prevent flourishing by constantly hurting one another. And I think that matters because that aspect of this story is particularly interesting when you compare the story of Noah to another flood story from ancient history. Chuck, can we throw up that picture slide that I've got coming up? There it is. Have any of you heard before of something called the Epic of Gilgamesh? Hands? Some of you have. This is a picture from the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's one of the oldest stories we've ever found. Uh, actually predates our earliest records from Genesis, believe it or not. And it's the story of a worldwide flood, except focused on a guy named Gilgamesh instead of Noah. If you haven't heard this story before, the Epic of Gilgamesh is an ancient Mesopotamian story that dates way back to, to, the, to the time of the Old Testament. Like I said, it's one of the oldest stories that we ever found, and it tells the story of a worldwide flood and a boat that saves one family, also filled with animals. Interesting, right? The parallels are, are very, very similar. There are a number of uncanny similarities, actually, between the story of Noah and the story of Gilgamesh. It's very likely that the first readers of Genesis would have at least some knowledge of the Epic of Gilgamesh. It was written in the space where they lived during the time in which they lived there. There are, however, marked differences between the two stories. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, the gods have decided that humans are too loud, actually. They're just too noisy. Now, some of that could be a euphemism for violence as well. We get that. But the gods get frustrated and angry And out of their anger and frustration and actually fickleness, they decide to destroy all of humanity. We we have a set of fickle, angry, callous, vengeful gods in the Epic of Gilgamesh. They don't care about humanity at all. They are just tools or pawns in this bigger game that they're playing. There's a stark contrast to what we see in the story of the Epic of Gilgamesh around these callous, fickle gods to the story of Noah. I don't think it's accidental that that if Moses is the writer of Genesis, he doesn't talk about God being angry, but sad. In the story of Gilgamesh, the gods are angry and fickle. In the story of Noah, God is filled with sadness. He sees these, these valuable created beings that he's made, and instead of flourishing, they're hurting each other, and that breaks his heart. And so, to a broken world, he offers up a new start, a new creation. We said that last week. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't questions that remain, but it's it's clear when you compare the two stories, they're intentionally communicating different things about the gods. Ishtar and Yahweh are not the same, this story says. There's another theme that begins to become clear in the story of Noah as well. And it's a theme that's actually going to continue through the rest of Scripture. If you remember a month back when we were in Genesis 3, we said the temptation of the servant to Eve was that we humans could be the gods of our own lives. Hopefully you remember that. The temptation that the, temptation that the, the, the serpent brings to Eve is says, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. You can be the God of your own life. That was what was compelling. So Eve eats the fruit and immediately experiences evil and realizes she makes a serious mistake. She's now in one sense like God, but in in But in another sense, she may know what God knows, but she can't handle it. 
and it creates chaos, which kicks off this long-term lesson in the Bible. What we start to see in Genesis 1, moving through the rest of Scripture, is that God is repeatedly throughout the Bible showing, showing us that we cannot be the gods of our own lives. Which I think from the human perspective then kicks off these series of what-if questions. What I mean by that is this. The serpent says you can be like God, which is compelling to Eve, but it creates chaos. But then you can imagine in the human mind going, but yeah, but what if... What if God had warned Eve of the serpent right before he shows up? Surely he would, she would have been able to master it if he had done that. Then she could have been the God of her own life. But if you've been with us, that's actually the story of Cain, isn't it? God comes to Cain and says, sin is crouching at your door, master it. Warns him right before it happens. And he fails. But you can imagine in that story then the what if going, but what if Cain was given another shot now, he's, now that he's experienced the consequences of his action? We saw that as well. God says, this is how you're restored. Put yourself in your brother's shoes. Cain fails to learn that lesson as well. And we see even more chaos ensue as we work through the genealogies of Genesis 4 and 5. But you can imagine in the human mindset then going, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. But what if... What if humans were to experience all the awful cascading effects of sin in their lives and then they were given a fresh start with that knowledge? We've seen what happens if we try to be the gods of our own lives and let sin go down that way. It, everything's a mess, but what if with that knowledge we were given a fresh start? Well, that's the story of Noah. A literal redoing of the Genesis 1 story, which we saw last week. How does that work out? Genesis 9.20, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it, laid it across their shoulders and walked backwards to cover their father's nakedness. Their, fathers were their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father's nakedness. Now, a notably strange story. <laughs> Get that. But I actually want to give Mike credit because he saw this last week already. So this is what you were we were talking about at the end, right? We see some really interesting things in this story, don't we? What happens, right? Noah plants a vineyard. He plants fruit. What does the fruit do? It causes him to fall, right? Just like we had in the story of Genesis 3. Noah plants fruit. Noah eats the fruit the wine, drinks the wine, which causes him to fall, which immediately produces what? A nakedness. It's not even that subtle, right? It's all right there. What happens right after Adam and Eve fall in the fruit, with the fruit in the garden? They realize they're naked. There's, there's connections that are supposed to be here. Fruit causes the fall, which causes a nakedness and understanding in this way. Then we have this strange part about ham. Right? It, says, it says in our Bibles that, that it, he sees his father's nakedness. And if we were to keep reading, we see that's obviously a really bad thing. Um, and so his line is actually then cursed moving forward. Now, my guess is if you're like me, that, that's a tricky part of this story because it doesn't seem like the punishment fits the crime. Sure, we get it. It's disrespectful for him to look at his father while he's naked, I suppose. But does that really mean we're just going to curse your line throughout all of history? That seems like a pretty extreme 
uh, uh, penalty for a relatively minor uh, slighting, right? Well, <clears throat> there's a lot of debate amongst the rabbinic traditions of what actually this text is trying to tell us. Most, almost all rabbis agree that it's not just a like looking at someone who's naked. It's got to be something more than that. And so there's a wide range of what actually the Bible is trying to communicate here amongst those traditions, ranging from the milder ones of simple disrespect for your father to the most extreme, and this is a little bit tough, I'm sorry, but the most extreme examples are actually like castration or sexual assault, right? Just to be frank about it, that's, that's, those, are, those are compelling um, possibilities in this space, which obviously is a much more serious thing than just seeing someone who's naked. There's a strong suggestion that some kind of violence happens here in the ham story, which would then to continue that which would then continue the progression that we've seen in the first four chapters of Genesis as well. Noah falls due to fruit. His nakedness is exposed, and then Ham commits violence against his father which actually progresses right along the stories of Genesis 1 through 4 because we're back to the story of Cain, aren't we? One more argument that actually supports that direction is the fact that when Noah offers his curse, he doesn't actually curse Ham. If we could throw up the next passage here. He curses Ham's son, which says, When Noah awoke from his, his wine and found out that his youngest, what his youngest son has done, had done to him, he says, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves he will be to his brothers. I don't think it's on accident that the curse goes to Canaan, which is very clearly a root name from Cain himself, right? Essentially what we're being told in this story is that humanity is offered a reset, that God literally walks back through the steps of Genesis 1, through, Genesis 1 only to have us immediately walk through Genesis 3, 4, and 6. What if God gives humanity a fresh start while well, we mess it up almost immediately? Bringing us right back to where we were before. I encourage you to actually pay attention to that what-if motif moving forward because it's going to come back again and again and again. What if God empowers one family unit to walk with him in a special way? Well, that's the story of Abraham. What if that family unit fails? Well, then maybe we'll pick one section of that to be something called Levites. It, over and over and over again, what we get to see in this story is that God is continually and repeatedly accommodating humanity to make it easier to follow him all the way through the scriptures. He keeps meeting them to say, I'm letting you know you can't be the God of your own lives, but what if we had this? It's not going to work. Over and over and over again, we see that throughout Scripture, all the way to the time of Jesus into today. What we see throughout Scriptures is God reaching out towards humanity in their brokenness to accommodating, making it easier for them to walk with him, giving them more and more tools to set things right. The story of Noah is a tricky one for sure, but especially contrasted to similar stories from that time, it tells a completely different story about who God is. It's saying to us clearly, the God of Genesis is not like Ishtar, it's not like Ra, it's not like Isis. His desire is to see his creation restored, to see humanity live into the lives they were created to live. It's the story of God meeting humanity in their brokenness in order to see them restored. 
Now, are there still a lot of questions left in this story? Absolutely. But hopefully we can pull onto that theme. to see enough, We've seen enough here to trust the goodness of God while we continue to explore those questions together. Because once again, it brings us back to what we said at the beginning. How we see God matters. If God is God of angry vengeance, of punishment and of rage, then it's easy for us to apply that to the pain that we experience in our lives. Bad things happen because God planned them to. This person died because you didn't have enough faith and God was testing you in the midst of that thing. Those are tough. We can live our entire lives then in fear of God. One misstep and we're done. Now, the Bible does talk about the fear of God, but it's not terror. We've said it a number of times here. That's an understanding of who Zeus is. Step out of line and a lightning bolt hits you. The fear the Bible is talking about is kind of reverence, is understanding God is bigger than you. If instead we see that God throughout Scripture is reaching down to us to restore us to what we were created to be, we get a very different picture of how things work. How we understand that aspect of God completely changes how we read particular passages. For instance, Romans 8.28. If we've got that, we can throw that up. This is the passage that's most often used for everything happens for a reason or that God has a plan. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We could read that and say that God causes all the pain that we experience because he wants to accomplish something greater. Or, perhaps, we can say that bad things happen in the world and God will reach down to us to take the broken pieces of those things and build them back into something beautiful. How you view God will change the way that you read these passages. If God is a God that is constantly trying to show you, I want to be with you and see you restored, then he's saying he's working in spite of sin, not through sin. Subtle but very important. Does that make sense? I hope. See, we as humans are exceptional at messing things up breaking things, hurting people. Given all the tools that we have, all the chances, we still manage to make a mess of things. But the promise of the story of Noah, or in Romans here, is that no matter how badly you've screwed it up, God can take those pieces and restore them. To, it can redeem them. It can actually take the brokenness that we've experienced in our lives and turn it back into something beautiful. What we see here is that not, God doesn't cause someone to drink, let's say but we'll take those broken pieces and restore them. And we can actually experience the practical outpourings of that in so many different ways. The best person to help a struggling alcoholic is who? A recovered one, right? Someone who's been there, has experienced those things, who knows what the pitfalls are, the damage, the hurt. That person can speak into that life in a different kind of way. The, spe- the best person to help someone work through the brokenness that we might be experiencing is someone who's walked through it as well. The different, we can say that God caused that to help the other or that even though this bad thing happened, there's a, there's a path forward towards redemption in the midst of it. How you view God matters. So usually at this point of the message, it would give you some kind of challenge to take a look at your life in different areas that maybe you, that you want to see redeemed in those spaces. We did that last week though. But I want to challenge you all with this week, and this is a much harder task than it sounds at its surface, is to spend a little bit of time reflecting on what, how you view God. 
In your life, do you view God as that angry and vengeful judge who's just waiting to get you when you mess up? And how has that affected how you've played out your faith life? Or do you view God as a good father who actually is continually trying to show you the best way to live? My guess is that there's probably a little bit of both in all of our lives. I wish I could remember, I was talking with Tom Spencer, who's not here today, but he, last week, when, or a couple weeks ago, I was playing poker with him, and he, and he laid it out perfectly. I wish I'd recorded him, but he says, God is like, for him, he's like, God is like a father. Sometimes you don't like what dad has to say, but you can trust that he's got your best interests at heart. It's paraphrasing, sorry, Tom, you probably said it better than me. But from that part of the conversation, there was a lot of different things that we could talk about. How do you see God? Do you view him like Zeus, angry, vengeful, ready to zap you? Or do you view him as someone who genuinely desires the best for you? I want to challenge all of us this week to take some time to wrestle with that. It may force you to rethink some things that, you, that you've held on to for a long time. It may, fo- may force you to think about stories differently or experiences that you've had. I think it's a question that many of us don't ask that we, we answer it in some kind of superficial way that, of course, God is good, but haven't actually played that out for what it might mean or how, what that might mean in the different nuances, especially in stories like the story of Noah. It's not going to be easy. Please, if you, if you get into a space in which things get, start to get really messed up for you and like your whole structure is messed up, give me a call, give Lisa a call, give somebody a call and talk about it. We do this faith thing together because it's tricky. But I think it's incredibly crucial because in stories, because we've seen the theme play twice out already in the first nine chapters of the Bible. Where we start the story matters a lot. How we view God also matters a lot. As we continue to move through Genesis, your answer to that question will affect how you read each and every aspect of the stories that we have moving forward. Take some time this week. Wrestle with it through difficult stories like this. How do you view God Personally, the moment that I was able to shift God from this angry, vengeful kind of being to somebody who genuinely wants to see me flourish, I was able to even adapt to the trials that I experience in my life completely differently. That there's somebody out there who, who regularly has told me, I've, some of the most powerful prayer moments I've had in my life is when I know I screwed up and I'm laying there at night and I'll just ask God even now, And the response I continually get is, yes, of course, now. Now, that's a different kind of experience. Yeah, you blew it. You know the pain you're experiencing, and I love you deeply in the midst of this. Let's do better tomorrow. How we view God matters. And I challenge you to wrestle with that this week. Will you pray with me? Father God, we realize that... uh, there are a lot of aspects of our lives that, uh, that, we, that, we, that go unexplored or unexamined. Maybe one of those might be just our understanding of who you are. It says throughout Scripture that you're relational, that you desire to be close to us in that way. 
In order to do that, we need to have a good understanding of who you are and what your relationship to us is. So Lord, we pray this week that you give each of us wisdom. Wisdom to understand how you're interacting with our lives, who you are and who we view you to be. Lord, I pray that you give us eyes to see the areas in which we've misunderstood who you are. In which we've thought of you more like Ishtar or Zeus or Ra than we have Yahweh. Lord, we pray that, that, that you can deeply sink into each of us the inherent value you've created in us, the desire you, that, you, that you have for all of us to flourish, that the challenges that you give are to work out the things that are holding us back. Amen.